friends, we're at, a, we're at an inflection point in the life of our church. God is really at work here, and it's been incredible to see. And uh, the chances are you're seeing the Lord work in your life. And there's, there's just some incredible ministry things happening. There's, um, I, was, I was enjoying on Thursday morning, there's a women's Bible study. There were 27 women who are here for a Bible study, a, a growth group on Wednesday morning. We've, we continue to have more kids in our kids' ministry. There's, there's other things that we see as God is as, um, impacting lives through the proclamation of the word, through prayer, through, through the ways that he's working in our church family. And and with everything that's changing, with things that are, that are happening, I want to make sure that we are on the same page with the vision and priorities of who we are as a church. And we use, we use three words to describe who we are. The DNA of who we are as a church. Welcoming, transforming, and sending. And God has made us to be a welcoming church where we're a a warm, with a warm sense of family where we embrace following Christ together as brothers and sisters in the household of God. He's made us to be a transforming church with an expectation that we're going to see change in our lives and around us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the sanctifying power of the Spirit for God's glory. And he's made us a sending church with a heartfelt motivation and urgency to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others near and far. And I want to take an opportunity at this inflection point in our church, to, to spend the next three weeks expounding the biblical foundations of these themes of welcoming, transforming, sending. Because what it's really all about is the gospel of Jesus Christ, through and through. I want to make it really clear. We are a gospel-centered church. And as we walk through a season of growth and development in our disciple-making vision, I want to make sure that we're crystal clear on the gospel and the heart behind what we do. And so here's what, here's what this week and then the next few weeks is going to look like as we go through looking at the kind of DNA of who we are as a church in this little mini-series that I'd like to do. We're going to talk about being a welcoming church, which means we've received the gospel. We're all sinners saved by grace. Our hands are open to receive this gift in full surrender, boasting in Christ alone, not in our merit. And because we've freely been welcomed into God's family through Christ, we can freely welcome one another with those same open arms, opening our lives to one another as sinner saints on level ground at the foot of the cross. We're also going to see that we're a transforming church, which is that we are stewards of the gospel. We want to see the gospel of Jesus Christ bear fruit in our lives and in the lives of people around us as we walk together in faith, as we, we, we submit and seek the Lord together, as we see his work in us. We want to take the precious treasure that we have in Jesus, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and steward this message for a kingdom return that glorifies God. And then we're going to look in a couple weeks here at being a sending church. That we've been given a free gift by God's grace. And now we have the privilege to freely give away this gift to others. That we've received Christ with open hands and so we give Christ away with open hands. This is the, 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 the gospel-centered DNA of who we are, and, and it's what we're going to be focusing on for a few weeks here. So let's jump in and look at the first one. We're going to talk about uh, how, see what the Lord has to teach us today through his word as we look at being a church founded on the gospel. So open up with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 
Go to 1 Peter 2. And if you need a copy of the Bible, raise your hand. Would love to have you see the scriptures. Follow along with me as I read and hear these words and, and see them for yourself. What we're going to be doing as we jump into 1 Peter 2 is we're going to be, let me remind you here, the Apostle Peter is writing to Christians who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They are challenged every day with this sense that they're foreigners and exiles in this world. And they realize how a gospel-centered church is essential to their survival. And so after Peter reminds them of the living hope we have in Jesus Christ, he wants to make sure, as they understand their calling to be holy in the midst of an unholy world, he wants to make sure that these early believers view their relationship to Christ through the right lens. And so let's read together, and you'll see what I mean by that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Hear the word of the Lord. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let me ask you a question. When you were, when you were a kid, did you ever play with Legos? Or build a house of cards? Or maybe make a fort out of blankets and chairs in your house? Anybody do that? Or maybe make a, a, a snow fort when you're having that snowball fight and try and hide behind it, right? Now, if you, if you remember those days, you probably know that there's some tricks and techniques in order to make sure that that fort doesn't topple over. You want to make sure it's strong enough so that your little brother or little sister doesn't knock it over, right? Now, one of the more popular toys these days are called magnetiles. Anybody seen magnetiles before? Okay, they have little magnets on the corners and the edges, and you can make things out of the magnetiles by simply putting the magnets one on the, the other and seeing the, the, the corners connect. Now, my kids acquired some magnetiles a few years ago from a friend as a gift, and I remember a number of years ago now, um, my kids love playing with these, and one of my daughters, Annabelle, she was playing with her magnetiles, she had this whole house that she had created and set up, and she was playing with all her toys and putting them all inside, and she decided she didn't like the color of the one that was right near the corner, and she kind of wanted to change that out. So she pulled the one right off the corner, and both of the walls of this house just immediately collapsed. And what she noticed, what she realized, is that that corner piece was holding up the entire structure. 
That one tile was the key tile to holding up the walls of this building. And, and if you're in the ancient world, when you're building out of stone and you're building them brick by brick, it's the same principle in the ancient world. When you build a stone structure, the cornerstone is the most important piece, the most important part of the foundation, the most important part of the building. A cornerstone with cracks or flaws will not do. A tiny little insignificant cornerstone won't work. The cornerstone must be up to the task or the building project will fail. And this is exactly what Peter writes about in this passage. He calls Jesus the chosen and precious cornerstone. Now remember, Peter is writing to Christians who find themselves in a hostile world. And, and they face struggles and pressures every day. They feel like foreigners in their own culture, their own community. And this is what... He's writing to these believers in the early church, and we need as an encouragement today, the only sure foundation for the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hear me again, friends. The only sure foundation for the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter reminds us of this truth in three ways. You can go to the next slide there, Nathan. First, what, as he reminds us of this truth, we see uh, in verses 4 to 5 an entire new definition of who we are as a church. Then we're going to see in, in verses 6 to 8 that the church is built on the precious cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And then third, we're going to see that, the, that he, he gives us this new gospel-centered task as the church in verses 9 to 10. So we're first going to, this is how we're going to go through our passage today, talk about the definition of who we are, that we stand on the precious cornerstone of Jesus Christ, and that we talk about the gospel-centered task that we have. So let's look at who we are, verses 4 to 5. Now, if you go back to the text here with me, these two verses draw on an important theme from the Bible that is sown throughout the scriptures, and it's the theme of temple. A temple is where God's presence dwells. It's where heaven meets earth. It's where we commune with God personally, where we bring our worship, where the rest of the world sees and knows that God is real. And this theme shows up throughout the Bible. So let me walk you through this quickly so that you can see how Peter taps into this theme of temple across the scriptures. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden was like a sanctuary where God's presence dwelled personally with Adam and Eve. As Adam and Eve see, see God walking with them in the cool of the day in the garden, there's this sense of the garden being a sanctuary of God's presence, a temple. But then after sin enters, and humanity is then cast away, banished from God's presence in the garden, God's redemptive promises come as he dwells with his people in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and temple. And so you see in the books of Exodus and then throughout the rest of the, the Pentateuch and, the, and the, the rest of the Old Testament, this sense of God's presence coming to dwell as he has set up this tabernacle, this temple, this place of communion with his people. Then we see, of course, as we fast forward through scripture, the pinnacle expression of God's presence coming in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 
the very Son of God, the, as, as Paul writes in Colossians 2, the fullness of deity in bodily form. And then when Jesus dies, the most dramatic moment is Jesus says, it is finished. The text of scripture says that the curtain of the temple is torn in two. That that holy of holies where God's presence dwells is now, that the curtain is torn, that through Christ's blood we can now enter freely into the presence of God. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, we're now born again of the Spirit of God, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And the scriptures say that we now have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We are now temples of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit is the down payment, as we see in the New Testament. Uh, the seal that we know that we will be in the face-to-face -face presence of God forever in the new heavens and new earth. That we look ahead to this restoration of the renewal of all things where sin and evil and death are gone forever. And it is now a cosmic temple. God's presence in the new heavens and new earth. This theme of temple is sown throughout the whole Bible from the first chapter to the last. And Peter is tapping into this stream of temple theology that spans the grand story of the Bible, and he's helping us to see the good news of the gospel. It's good news because God is not distant. God has come near the eternal creator's present with us through Christ as, as, as Christ in his incarnation, his glorification, as he gives us his spirit. God is with us right now. And the church throughout history and our church today, as Peter says, we're being built into a spiritual house for the spirit of God to dwell until Christ's return when we will see him face to face. He, we are living stones in the edifice of God's dwelling place. Whoa! That is astounding. And we're called to live for him, to devote ourselves to him, to give our whole lives to him. To show the world what the presence of God will do to transform us. And for our lives to be a spiritual sacrifice. You see the words that Peter uses, especially in verse 5. That we're a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Did you notice what he says at the end of that sentence? Through Christ Jesus. The way that our lives can be an acceptable sacrifice to God is only possible through Jesus. And he makes sure to remind us of Jesus, the precious cornerstone. And so let's go to that next part of the text here. We talked about who we are, the royal priesthood, the chosen people of God, the spiritual house in which his presence dwells. There's, as we look at the precious, precious cornerstone here in verses 6 to 8, what you see is a series of quotations and what, there's a contrast that is developed by Peter. He wants us to realize through a repetition of quotations from the Old Testament that Jesus is the dividing line of history. That he is the only one worthy of praise. That he alone can save. That, and listen carefully, that you cannot be neutral about Jesus. Here's another way to say this. 
as we see especially these texts of Scripture, is that Jesus will either build you up or trip you up. Jesus will either build you up or trip you up. Let me explain what I mean by that as we look at the text. In verse 6, we see the sense of Jesus building up, the, the, the reality of the church being built on this precious cornerstone. Peter quotes from Isaiah 28. If you've got footnotes in your Bible and you've got those little italic kind of uh, superscript letters in there, look down at the footnotes and you'll see all the quotations from the Old Testament. He quotes from Isaiah 28, which was a promise to the Israelites who were under attack by the Assyrians, the most brutal of empires in this day and age, 700 years before Christ. And, and, and what, what, what Isaiah writes, the word of the Lord to the Israelites at that time, is that they would be safe because God himself would lay his chosen and precious cornerstone in his holy city and that all who trust in the Lord would not be put to shame. They would not be destroyed. And so by Peter quoting from Isaiah 28, he's saying, if you feel under pressure, when you feel like all, uh, all things are against, if, if you feel like you don't know what's going to happen next, he says, listen, the church is built on this chosen and precious cornerstone. And the words he says is the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. He's strong enough. He is perfect. He is the only cornerstone worthy of building God's holy people upon because on Christ the foundation it cannot topple and fall. Or Christ will trip you up. Verses 7 and 8. You see the other quotations Peter uses? Peter quotes from Psalm 118, which was a, a song that was often sung at the Passover festival. As the Israelites remember how God saved them in the midst of their slavery and bondage in Egypt. And then he also quotes from Isaiah 8, which is a passage all about God's promise of deliverance. Both of them, and especially as Peter uses them here, are a warning. Reject Jesus and it won't turn out well. Okay, let me put this in a different way and maybe ask you a question. Is Jesus precious to you? Is the message of who Jesus is and what he has done truly good news for you? See, answering this question gets to the heart of the gospel. It gets to the heart of our, uh, how we understand God, how we, how we live our lives day to day. It reaches deep down into our hearts to truly probe whether we grasp the gravity of what God has done for us in Christ. Is the message of the gospel, is the person of Jesus Christ precious to you? Answering this will set the tone for who we are as a church. See, friends, we live in a, an age and a day where the attitude towards Jesus often is take him or leave him. You can believe in Jesus if you want. Just don't impose your beliefs upon me. Don't bring him in the public square. Don't try and tell me that I need Jesus. 
And one of the central issues in our culture is that, is that we've deceived ourselves to think that we can be our own saviors, that, that we really aren't that bad inside, that we're just a few clicks away from making some good choices and getting our lives back on track, that we're doing just fine in the modern world without Jesus. See, I read a story this week about a, a pastor who served many years ago in an internship at a secular detox center. And he was tasked with leading a kind of a quasi-counseling session with a dozen men and women who were detoxing from heroin. Now, he was told, and, and when they hired him to do this thing, he was told he wasn't allowed to talk about religion, he wasn't allowed to talk about his faith, so he, he, he's sitting down in this room with these people, and he's reading through the self-help material that's provided, and he's, he immediately recognizes a profound disconnect with the people that he's talking to. Among the many problems that they faced... Deep down, this is what his sense of it was, he says, deep down they all felt this powerful sense of guilt and shame and failure. That they had let people down, that they had hurt people, that they had made a mess of their lives and lived with constant, overwhelming guilt for what they had done, that they were told that the drug was to blame, not them, that, that they just needed to forgive themselves and to move on with life and pick yourself up by your boot, bootstraps and, and, just, and, and you can get back on track, just, just go for it. And they all knew it was absolute nonsense. They felt completely stuck and helpless. And, and this kind of babbling on about making peace with yourself, they knew it was completely devoid of any power to save them. And so after the session, this pastor asked this group to describe how they felt. And one man took the hand out from the class and he crumbled it up into a ball and he threw it on the floor in front of everybody and he said, that's what should be done to me. If, if this is all about wishing away my guilt, my failure, if it's about pulling myself out of this mess on my own strength, he said, all I'm worthy of is being crumpled up into a ball and thrown in the trash. He said, there's no hope in that. There's no joy. There's no real redemption. So even though he wasn't supposed to, this pastor um, began telling the story of the prodigal son. And in this story, if you know the parable, the prodigal son, it's a young man who disrespected his father, who squandered all his money, who decided to live in outright sin, who hurt others, and he destroyed his life. He was full of shame and regret. He knew he was guilty. He knew that he was stuck. He knew that he was powerless to save himself. And yet what he found is that his father was overflowing with grace to welcome him back into the family. And this pastor looked at this group of dejected and hopeless prodigals and he told them about what Christ had done for them. He told them about God's grace to forgive, God's power to redeem. He told them how every single one of us comes to the foot of the cross impoverished, desperately in need of God's grace. 
He showed them how precious the gospel of Jesus Christ is and the real power there is to save in what Jesus has done. See, I was reminded this last week of the the great German reformer Martin Luther. He knew this reality really well. When Luther died in, in 1546, a small slip of paper was found in his coat pocket that said this in German. Wir sind alle Pettler. This is true. We are all beggars. Friends, when we realize our deepest need, when we grasp the gravity of our sin, and then we see our redemption won through Christ alone, and realize that the only way to receive what he has done is with arms open in repentance and surrender, that, that only then when we realize the great beauty of what God has done in his grace, can a church be built on the cornerstone of Christ. And only then are we ready for the the gospel-centered task that God has called us to, to shine the light of his kingdom in our community. So let's look at this last part of the text, verses 9 to 10. The gospel-centered task that we have. I just want you to listen to these words again and hear the beautiful picture of who we are in Christ and what our job is as his people. Verses 9 and 10 say this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see the glorious transformation that has happened? God has done a mighty work within us. And Peter first lists this new identity that we have as God's people. His chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession. And then he talks about the task that we have as his people. He says that we would declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Let me explain a few things about that sentence. The word declare is the same word for messenger. It's in fact the same word that's used for the word angel in the New Testament. It's this sense of of being sent, being an envoy of God, being a messenger on a mission. And here's our mission. To tell of the praises of God. That he has called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Okay, friends, that word called... It means to choose someone to receive a gift. It's, it, it's not this sense of, of beckoning or begging someone to see the light. God's not standing there going, hey, I hope you hear me. This sense of being called has this sense of compelling, of summoning someone like a king who has authority to say, you You are going to receive my light. 
And I'm sending you to show this dark world the light of Jesus. It means that we testify to the truth that God has reached down to save us. As Paul says in Romans 5.8, he says this, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while God thought you were pretty good. Not while you were trying as hard as you could. While you were stuck and dead and lost in your sin, God reached out and plucked you out of darkness. <laughs> this is the grace of the gospel. The free gift we have received. It means that we boast in Christ alone, that we stand in the mercy of God and we hold our arms wide open to receive God's grace and then to continue to live in God's grace day by day. Friends, my prayer is that we'd be a church where it is truly known that we all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. That he would receive the glory. That the invitation and welcome of the gospel to be blood-bought children of God, wrapped in the love of the Father like the prodigal son, that, would, that, would, that message would be proclaimed to the lost, that they would be found, and to the dead, that they would be born again of God's Spirit to new life in Christ. The great uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon, he founded a college for training pastors in 1856. And he was convinced that the cross is so absolutely central that he made an emblem for the college with these Latin words. You'll see it on the screen here. Et teneo, et teneor. I hold and I am held. Friends, the cross is what we hold on to. It's what we hold out to the world and we say, this is what we're all about. And yet the cross is what also, by Christ's blood, holds us. That he saves us, that we are secure in our redemption only on behalf. I hold and I am held. We've been chosen to receive a gift. Not by what we earned or what we deserved. And friends, this is what the world needs to see as we talk about being a welcoming church that's centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are all sinners saved by grace. And the good news of the gospel should cause us to say, welcome friend and fellow beggar. Come. Let me show you to the cross where my Savior died for me. I want you to know him too. He is the cornerstone of our church. He's the rock of my life. Let's pray. Lord, refresh us. Convict us. Give us a, a, a fresh vision of the beauty and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we would recognize we come to you in desperate need that we live in your grace. We've been saved by your grace. We live in your grace day by day. And that, Lord, in the freedom of that, welcome we have received, the calling that we have, the gift that we steward, Lord, that we would be a welcoming church that says, please come, come, and I'll show you to the cross. 
Lord, give us a heart that is soft day by day to stand in the grace that you've shown us. Lord, that we would show that to others. We need to, to be a light to show that we've moved from darkness to light, Lord. Make us a light that shines to be ones who have received your mercy and who declare that to the world around us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.